Hey, what's happening, food eaters? This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is the 23rd episode. So what's on the table today? Well, you can tell from the title that sometime in the next 45 minutes or so, I'll be talking about insects, arsenic, potato chips, and taxes. But I don't want to spoil it for you by revealing any details here. You're just going to have to listen to the show to get the skinny on those topics. For those new to the podcast, here's some of my history. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for many years, I've had a fascination, some may call it an obsession, with processed foods, what's in those foods, and how they may be affecting our health. I think this is still the only podcast that is devoted to looking behind the processed food curtain at all of those strange, unusual, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods stocked on the shelves of our grocery, box, and convenience stores. This is a 100% free podcast. No money will ever change hands. There are no sponsors or financial supporters. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and I refuse to help promote any business, commercial product, or organization. All I ask of you is to listen, and if you're informed, educated, or entertained by the content, please let others know through social media or the old-fashioned way, word of mouth. Website and contact information is provided at the end of the show. Let's get this podcast going. In the last episode, which was number 23, I shifted away from talking about specific food products and their ingredients and instead addressed current events in the world of food processing. But I only talked about a single subject, one that kept recurring during searches for the latest and greatest news. The subject was obesity. But, you know, I ignored all the other news out there. So, this episode is going to rectify that omission. Four news topics will be examined in detail. The lead story is insects. Now, what do insects have to do with processed food? Yeah, of course, we all know about the unintentional contamination of our food supply with insect parts. For example, the Federal Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, allows wheat flour to have on average 75 insect parts per 50 grams. That's about 1.8 ounces of flour. It's estimated that a person consumes 1 to 2 pounds of insect parts per year from all the food they eat. Yeah, I know, really gross, right? But that's not the topic for today. Rather, it's the direct and intentional inclusion of insects in food. From the online magazine Food Ingredients First comes the story about the company Protea Farm, located in the Netherlands, one of the world's leading producers of edible insects. Yes, you heard me right. I said edible insects. Protea Farm has been in the insect business for over 35 years, mainly processing insects for animal feed. But just recently, the European Union has issued regulations dealing with what they call novel food. Translate that to mean insects. Now, Protea Farm is gearing up to unleash on the peoples of Europe protein-based foods derived from buffalo mealworms. These little critters, a species of darkling beetles, 
breed prolifically. For many years, they've been consumed by Asians primarily in snack foods. They taste like peanuts, or so I'm told, and pack a nutritional wallop. 100 grams of these Wigglies contain only 206 calories and offer 14 to 25 grams of protein. They have potassium, copper, sodium, selenium, iron, and zinc, and rival beef in the mineral and vitamin departments. On a side subject, the mealworm larva can even degrade polystyrene and like to chomp on styrofoam, making them a potential means of eliminating that pesky plastic which hangs around the environment forever. According to Heidi De Bruin, a spokesperson for Protifarm, quote, Consumers are looking for foods that are antibiotic-free, chemical-free, hormone-free, but also lactose-free, and of course, insects answer to all of the above. They are sugar-free, low-salt, contain important vitamins and minerals, and contain all nine essential amino acids, and the way we breed them and produce them in our facilities, it's all under control in the right way. There is a market that has shown interest in consuming insects as a food source, and that is the flexitarian but also vegetarian market. End of quote. I think Heidi might be off her rocker with that statement. Uh, the last time I checked insects, they are classified as animals, and vegetarians, by definition, don't eat animals. So, that's a latest food trend in Europe. Do you see that happening anytime soon in the U.S.? Not likely, given the ick factor that people here experience around the idea of purposely eating insects. But just in case, listeners, here's an extra treat. From Entomo Farms in South Africa comes a recipe for chocolatey chip mealworm cookies. See the show notes for a link to this gourmet dessert. Now, if the Food Labels Revealed podcast had a paid subscriber option, at this point I'd be saying something like this. For paid subscribers only, go to the webpage and download nine additional recipes for your favorite mealworm dishes. Well, on a more serious note, looking into the future, who knows? Sometime down the road, you might be trying a new protein-enriched Rice Krispies product, and that snap, crackle, pop you hear might be coming from an ingredient processed at a local cockroach farm. Man, banish the thought. Just hand me the arsenic now. Hey, speaking of arsenic, that's the next news story. All the way from Pueblo, Colorado, and published in the Pueblo Chieftain, is the article entitled, Experts, Simple Fix to Woes About Arsenic in Baby Food. Whoa! What is arsenic and historic poison doing in baby food? Let's take a look at this. An independent organization called Healthy Babies Bright Futures, an organization concerned about toxins that babies get exposed to, commissioned a professional laboratory to analyze the arsenic content of commercial baby food. What was found was that rice cereal was more than six times higher in arsenic than other cereals, such as oatmeal, barley, and quinoa. Arsenic is linked to developmental defects, cardiovascular disease, neurotoxicity, diabetes, and even cancer. In 2016, the FDA proposed a recommendation to limit the arsenic concentration in infant cereal to no more than 0.1 ppm. In the cereal study, an average of 
0.085 ppm arsenic was found in, in, with one sample having 0.235 ppm or more than twice the proposed FDA limit. For those food eaters not familiar with the concentration unit ppm, it stands for parts per million. Everybody has probably heard of the idiom, one bad apple spoils the barrel. Just imagine a very big barrel that holds a million apples. If one of those apples was bad, then the barrel has one part per million or ppm of bad apples. That's pretty small, but when it comes to toxic ingredients like arsenic, small amounts can do some harm, particularly if the substance builds up in the body or bio a bioaccumulates over time. Now imagine a baby's body weight, which might be one fifteenth the weight of an adult's, it will acquire a toxic concentration much quicker. Hence the concern here. What can be done about this problem? As a parent of a newborn, you could wait for the government to crack down on food companies that produce products with high arsenic concentrations. Not a good idea, as government moves slowly and unpredictably and your baby grows quickly. Or, you could feed your baby cereal without rice. Note, even organic rice could be a problem. Or, better yet, make your own baby cereal at home. Or, the very best option, breastfeed your baby. And see episode 22 about the benefits of breastfeeding. Now, you might be thinking, where is this arsenic contamination in rice and other foods coming from? This is where the chemist in me gets interested in the topic. Some plants have the ability to take up arsenic from the soil. Rice is much better at this than other grains, hence the warning about feeding rice cereal to babies. Arsenic is an element, classified as a semi-metal semi to be specific. In its elemental form, it has both properties of a metal and a non-metal. However, arsenic is not found in its elemental state anywhere on Earth. It's always found combined with other elements to form arsenic-containing minerals, and those minerals are often naturally found in soil or from arsenic spewed from coal-burning power plants. A really interesting book that has a bunch of information about arsenic and other toxins is called The Elements of Murder, A History of Poison by John Emsley. It's a favorite of mine. Arsenic has a Jekyll and Hyde personality, and Emsley reveals both the harmful and beneficial sides of this classic poison. Its usage is very old. Several millennia ago, the Chinese used arsenic to kill flies and rodents. It's been used as a poison, a medicine, and as an industrial ingredient. The Romans used the yellow pigment, orpiment, and the red pigment, realgar, to heal warts. Over the years, arsenic compounds have been used to treat arthritis, asthma, malaria, TB, and venereal diseases. In the early 1900s, the medical research researcher Paul Ehrlich synthesized in a, an organic form of arsenic that cured sleeping sickness in people from Africa, and he received the Nobel Prize in Medicine for that discovery. During World War I, the U.S. military manufactured the arsenic compound called lewisite, to use in chemical warfare. Highly colored arsenic compounds were used as pigments to color all kinds of things like furniture, paint, cloth, linoleum, and children's toys. It took a long time into the late 1800s for people to figure out how toxic arsenic could be in humans. People who eat chicken today are exposed to arsenic. That's because chickens who are given feed containing arsenic 
grow better. Most of the arsenic winds up in the bird's feces, but the chicken feces are used by some farmers as fertilizer. How much arsenic do we typically have in our bodies? The average person weighing 154 pounds has about 7 milligrams of arsenic inside them. That gives a concentration of about 0.1 ppm. The arsenic tends to concentrate in the bones and the hair, so hair loss is often a sign of arsenic poisoning. Fortunately, our bodies tend to excrete arsenic readily, so it either takes a very large dose or a repeated series of doses to kill us. A dose of 250 milligrams or less could be lethal. Foods to avoid if wanting to limit arsenic intake are shellfish, wine, apple juice, chicken, and any plants, like rice, that tend to absorb it from the soil. Wine and apple juice are an issue since arsenic can wind up in those products from arsenic-containing insecticides used on grape plants. Okay, so you may need to go light on your rice, shellfish, and wine, but at least we still have Pringles potato snacks. Well, not exactly. Our third news story comes from Food Safety Magazine and is entitled, The Bane of Snack Foods, Acrylamid. Have any of you food eaters ever heard of acrylamid? It's another one of those hidden ingredients that you're not likely to ever see mentioned on a food package. But it has been all over the news since the early 2000s. When I was still working in the food industry about eight years ago, I read quite a few stories about acrylamid in the trade magazines. There is a very strange tale about how this toxin was discovered as a contaminant in some foods. The story begins in 1992 in western Sweden with the construction of a five-and-a-half-mile railway tunnel. Problems arose when a significant amount of water began seeping into the tunnel from surrounding rock. The contractor used a sealant to keep the water out. However, by 1997, a huge scandal was brewing. Nearby cattle and fish were suddenly dying and workers were getting sick. An investigation revealed that the sealant contained acrylamid, a toxic chemical that causes cancer and DNA damage. It was getting into the groundwater. Ultimately, the railway project was delayed for seven years until the problem was fixed. Now, what does the railway problem have to do with food? When Swedish health authorities measured the levels of acrylamid in the railway workers, they compared that group of people to a control group from the general population. What they found was startling. The control group also had acrylamide in their bodies, but at lower levels. Thus began another investigation into why the control group was also contaminated. What they discovered was that Swedes were getting acrylamide from the foods they were eating. The study, released in 2002, revealed that people had levels of acrylamide in their bodies 500 times the limit established by the World Health Organization and the EPA, which was about 0.5 ppb, which is parts per billion. What foods were contaminated by acrylamide? Well, actually, none. What was happening was that the acrylamide was forming during the production process of certain foods. The culprits were the common amino acid asparagine and sugars like glucose. When those chemicals combined at elevated temperatures, 
over 248 degrees Fahrenheit, a reaction occurred to produce acrylamide. This phenomenon occurred in baked, roasted, and fried products like crackers, bread, toast, rice, coffee, and particularly in potato snacks like french fries and potato chips. What? Surely not potato chips. Now, have you ever heard of this problem? It, it was in the headlines for a while, particularly in food industry magazines, but like most scary food stories, it died down after a time. However, the acrylamide problem never went away. The World Health Organization has described acrylamide as probably carcinogenic to humans, as well as being a neurotoxin. Sadly, because of their body weight and the foods they eat, infants and young children typically ingest twice as much acrylamide as adults. Pregnant women eating foods high in acrylamide may give birth to underweight babies with smaller head sizes key indicators of a child's future health and intelligence. Has anything been done about this issue? Well, on the state level, California is the only state that publicly warns residents about the dangers of acrylamide. In 1986, Californians voted for Proposition 65, which requires the state to publish a list of chemicals that may cause a significant risk of reproductive toxicity or cancer. In 2011, acrylamide was added to that list. Manufacturers are required to put a label on any products that have a toxic chemical from the Prop 65 list. The kicker is that the label does not have to reveal the name of the toxin or its concentration. In an interesting story from 2014, Starbucks and 90 other coffee sellers were sued by a California advocacy group to force them to put the toxic warning label on coffee cups. That lawsuit has yet to be decided. So what about at the federal level? As far as I know, the FDA has not issued any regulations for the presence of acrylamide in processed foods. However, in March 2016, the agency did issue a guidance for industry informing food companies how to minimize acrylamide in their products but there are no requirements to list the presence or contamination of acrylamide on labels. Back to the news story, which started this whole discussion. If you're at all concerned about acrylamide in your diet, there are things you can do about it besides just eliminating potato chips and other snacks from your diet. If you cook at home, avoid frying at temperatures above 248 degrees. Don't fry for prolonged periods. Toast your bread to a light yellow color and soak potatoes before frying or roasting. But there's even something better on the horizon. Manufacturers can add acrylamide reducing yeast during the production process to eliminate 80% of the asparagine, one of the precursors to acrylamide. The company, called Renaissance Bioscience, is in Canada, and they developed a non GM yeast strain capable of quickly and easily reducing the incidence of acrylamide in a wide variety of foods. Importantly, since yeast is a traditional food processing agent and ingredient that has been used safely for thousands of years, it's a natural fit for use by food manufacturers. <laughs> The last news story, entitled A Sugar Tax is Not Enough, comes from South Africa and was published in Scientific American. 
It's an issue affecting people around the globe. What can governments do to get their citizens to eat healthier diets so epidemics of heart disease, stroke, and diabetes are curbed or eliminated? One way, which is cropping up more and more, is to place a sugar tax on sugary drinks. South Africa, as a country, is going to try that in 2018. Here's a quote from the article. Last year, new research suggested that the true effects of sugar have been kept hidden from the general public and are just now coming forward. While debates are still ongoing, many nutrition experts say excess sugar is a primary cause of obesity and heart disease. In the African continent, an increase in non-communicable diseases like heart disease is eroding gains made in the fight against AIDS, TB, and malaria. While a tax is not the only way to reduce these diseases, it still can help improve citizens' health. Research shows that taxes on sugary drinks can lower consumption and reduce obesity and type 2 diabetes. A study looking at the possible effects of the sugar tax in South Africa demonstrated the likelihood that consumers will switch to other drinks. In Mexico, a report showed that in the second year of a tax of 10% per liter on all sugar-sweetened drinks, there has been a 10% decrease in purchases of taxed drinks and a 13% increase in plain water purchases. Thus, despite the prevalence of sugar in not only beverages but processed foods of all kinds, it is possible to change the tide in public consumption. The downside is it may not be a permanent shift. Newer information from Mexico shows that after a brief period of drop in sales volume, volume is rising again and appears to be normalizing. This suggests that taxes may have a limited impact because a tax only affects the affordability of the drinks without affecting its availability, the acceptability of drinking it, and awareness about the negative health outcomes. End quote. There was a related article in The Guardian entitled, Australian Medical Association, the AME, wants tax on sugary drinks and a ban on junk food ads. Here's a quote from the article. Although the AMA labeled a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages a matter of priority in September, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, rejected the idea of a 20% tax on the grounds that consumers already paid enough taxes at the supermarket. It looks like a tax on sugary beverages is in for a real battle in Australia. The AMA went even further by saying advertising and marketing unhealthy food and drink to children should be prohibited altogether, and the loophole that allows children to be exposed to junk food and alcohol advertising during coverage of sporting events must be closed, said Michael Gannon, president of the Australian Medical Association. Now, I would be shocked to hear those fighting words coming from the American Medical Association, whose stance on unhealthy processed foods has been pretty mute. So here's the question. Will forcing people to spend more money on unhealthy foods cause them to reduce their consumption? Has it worked in the United States? In USA Today in May 2016, an article mentioned that four cities, including Oakland, Philadelphia, and Boulder, were working on sugar tax measures. Oakland was holding a referendum on whether to add a penny-per-ounce tax on sweet drinks, and it passed in November 2016. 
In Philadelphia, in June 2016, the City Council passed a tax on all soda beverages at 1.5 cents per ounce. In Boulder, there was a ballot measure to decide whether to impose a soda tax of 2 cents per ounce. It passed in November 2016 and is currently the highest soda tax in the nation. However, since 2008, taxes on sugary drinks have failed to gain enough votes from the public or local lawmakers or have been repealed 43 times in different cities and states. As an example, in New York City, in March 2013, the Board of Health imposed a soda ban which prohibited the sale of many sweetened drinks exceeding 16 ounces in size. Just over one year later, in June 2014, the New York Court of Appeals overturned the New York City resolution saying that it exceeded the scale of its regulatory authority. In Illinois, Cook County, where Chicago is located, was going to impose a one-cent-per-ounce tax on sweetened soft drinks, but a lawsuit by the Illinois Retail Merchants Association put an end to it. As regards state-imposed levies, two states, Arkansas and West Virginia, have excise taxes on carbonated soft drinks and other sugary beverages that have been in place for decades. At the federal level, as expected, no bills have targeted the sweetened beverage industry. Well, let's wrap up the show. To summarize, what have we learned here? Not only do we have to be concerned about possible nasty ingredients posted right on the food label, but there are sinister hidden ingredients that wind up in some products. Arsenic is in the environment. It's in the air, water, soil. So it has the potential to appear in our food. Most adults shouldn't have to worry about arsenic poisoning unless they have some vengeful enemies. But toddlers are more susceptible to that hidden ingredient. So parents need to be watchful concerning the food infants and toddlers consume, particularly rice-based products. Then there's acrylamide, a name only a chemist could love. Get too much of it, and you ruin your genes. And I'm not talking pants here. It's found in most fried and baked snacks, particularly those involving potatoes. Unfortunately, 99% of us eat that stuff, so it's pretty hard to avoid when consuming processed or fast foods. Fortunately, biochemistry to the rescue... In the near future, food industries may utilize a new yeast, which limits the formation of the toxic chemical. In the meantime, you might want to consider cutting back on your potato chip consumption. Are insects our many-legged and body-segmented friends? Will they solve the world food crisis? If you're like me, you probably don't want to talk about this subject, but there's a move afoot in Europe to include them as a major processed food ingredient because, pound for pound, they're packed with protein and essential nutrients. Don't be surprised if someday your buffalo wing entree will actually be made from buffalo mealworms. What the hay, after all. It's really the sauce that matters, right? Then there's a controversial solution to our overconsumption of sugar, taxes. Of course, the purpose of such taxes is to discourage or reduce the consumption of sugary drinks that may contribute to an unhealthy diet. However, the question I have is whether taxing such products will have any effect on changing people's habits. Personally, 
I don't think so. If a person craves Coke or Pepsi, an additional 10 to 25 cents a bottle is, going, is not going to limit their purchases. Oddly, for once I'm on the side of Big Soda, which for obvious reasons vehemently fights special tax levies on their products. Plus, as an excise tax, it affects lower-income people more than others because it represents a larger percentage of their income. Even if the extra tax money collected was used to educate people about the risk associated with a high-sugar diet, I still don't think it's a, a good idea. I, I think a better idea would be to adopt the tobacco model. Require food companies that manufacture high-sugar products to place a health warning on them. Also, the government should initiate a public health campaign educating people about the true cost of consuming excessive amounts of sugar. Remember those public health warnings against smoking? They were pretty effective. What do you think, food eaters? Well, to all of you out there, muchas gracias for tuning in. If you could leave a review, good or bad, or indifferent, at the iTunes store, I would greatly appreciate it. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Uh, it's at www.podbean.com or by Googling the phrase Food Labels Revealed. And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet. Also, if you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or just want to say hello, feel free to drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's all one string, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. And lastly, if you think your family, friends, or associates might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets. See you on this channel next month, and remember... If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. To switch things up a bit, here's a new outro music piece called Deadly Roulette by Kevin McLeod.